This morning being a communion Sunday, I kind of wanted to, I thought it might be nice to devote our entire time this morning to that, to that thought, what communion <clears throat> is commemorating. So I'd like to actually start in 1 Corinthians 11, just as an introductory passage, that message isn't going to be on 1 Corinthians, it's if you look at the book, it's going to be on Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We may be here a while. No, seriously, uh, I'll, get, I'll get to it when we get there. 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, <clears throat> in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And we had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I'll stop there for now. This is my body. It was his body on that cross that was a sacrifice for sin that Quite frankly, every Passover lamb slaughtered, um, <clears throat> pictured. Uh, matter of fact, every lamb from the time of Moses, you go back to Exodus 12 when the Passover system was introduced, um, all the way to right here at that last supper that the Lord sat at, where in the hours to follow that last supper he was at, that Passover meal that he celebrated, he, in fact, would, at that point in time, was the Passover lamb pictured by every lamb that has ever been slaughtered throughout history. And from that point on, the Passover celebration, about as far as lambs go, is totally unnecessary. Now, the new covenant in my blood, his blood again now, his blood, unlike those lambs, his blood washed the sins of his people away, unlike the animal sacrifices, what were mere covering. The Old Testament sacrifices are covering. Note this, this remembrance, we remember this sacrifice, because in this sacrifice, he paid for our redemption. And we are told, and this is a command, we are to, we are to proclaim, by doing this, we are proclaiming the Lord's death. And again, this is no small thing. And today, again, I would like to remember his death by revisiting and re-listening to the words Jesus spoke from the cross. And that's the title is, Our, Our Lord Speaks from the Cross. Now, a little bit of introductory information. Our Lord hung in agony on that cross for some six hours. During that time, he spoke seven times. Three times to the Father, once to, the, once to one of the criminals that was being crucified next to him, once to his mother and the Apostle John, once to the soldiers, and then his last one was to all people that were in earshot, although people around the cross heard everything he said. But the direction of it was to those groups. Now, the pain and the agony suffered by Jesus did not begin at the cross. It climaxed there with a... Uh, a ferocious intensity that no human could imagine. And as we get further into his sayings, we're going to see why that is. 
The pain and agony Jesus suffered did not begin at the cross, but it climaxed there. His suffering actually began the night before in the Garden of the Gethsemane. I'd like to turn there, Matthew 26. So like I say, we'll be visiting all four Gospels at some point here. Matthew 26, beginning at verse 36. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here for a while, while I go over and pray. And he said, and he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. I'm going to stop there. My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. That is actually a medical fact. A person could get so overwrought, it could kill you. You could die. It could cause heart failure. That, That is actually medically feasible. And he was to that, emotionally speaking, he was at that edge. He was right on the edge. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face. And that's literally what it means. He fell on his face saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, So you men could not keep watching me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And he went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My father, if this, if this cup cannot pass away unless I drink it, thy will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. And then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping, taking your rest? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Now, in that agony, his agony was knowing, quite frankly, what exactly was to land on him. And this torture, he was experiencing, this grief he was experiencing was not merely the physical torture, which is literally excruciating. But the, what he was dreading the most of all is what I think, which is, uh, which is expressed, I think, aptly in 2 Corinthians 5.21, that he was, just, he was about ready to literally face the wrath of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, he, he, speaking of the Father, made him, the Son, he made him sin who knew no sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So again, a sinless Christ. Again, we have to remember who he is. Jesus Christ is very much God. God and sin don't mix. He hates sin. And you can, can you imagine God becoming sin? And on top of that, receiving the wrath of God for it. 
think that's what we're remembering. Okay, now we move forward. <clears throat> after, his, after his arrest in the garden, we know about that, he was taken, and this is what is commonly known as the Jewish phase of the trial. And this is, again, this is all introduction. Where he went, and you can see it in John um, <clears throat> chapter 18, where he, was for, he, for, he left the garden, he was taken to Annas. Annas was the uh, former high priest, but some of you might remember when, uh, in Sunday school we went through the Gospel of John. Annas was kind of like the godfather of the uh, temple worship operation, the temple grounds. Remember, just a few days before Jesus overturned the money changers in the temple, well, Annas was in charge of that. The priests were in charge of that. Annas was like the godfather above the priesthood. And then his son-in-law, Caiaphas, was the high priest of that day. And then Annas sent him to Caiaphas, the high priest. You can call through that in John 18. And there Caiaphas, along with the Sanhedrin, declared him guilty of blasphemy and worthy of death. In Mark 14, 60 through 65, records it this way for us. The high priest stood up and came forward and questioned Jesus, saying, Do you not answer? What is it these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent and did not answer. Again, the high priest was questioning him and saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of the power of coming with the clouds of heaven. Tearing his clothes, the high priest said, What further need do we have of witness? You have heard the, the blasphemy. How does, it, how does it seem to you? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Some began to spit at him and to blindfold him and to beat him with their fists and to say to him, Prophesy. And the officers received him with slaps in their face. And... Another point of stress and humiliation might be that it was during this Jewish phase of the trial that Peter denied knowing him three times. And then they moved him. The Roman, we go to the Roman phase where the Sanhedrin then brought Jesus to Pilate. And for that, let's go to Luke chapter 23. Luke 23. Then the whole body of them arose, and that would be the Sanhedrin, <clears throat> brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, we found this man misleading our nation. Notice how the story changes. We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, saying, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered and said, it is as you say. And Pilate, said, and Pilate said to the chief priests and the multitudes, I find no guilt in this man. And they kept on insisting, saying, he stirs up the people, teaching all over Judea, starting, starting from Galilee, even as far as this place. But when Pilate heard it, he asked whether this man was a Galilean. And, <clears throat> and when he learned that he had belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who also was in Jerusalem, at the time. So now Pilate then sends him to Herod 
And then Herod interviews him, and we won't get into that, and then Herod sends him back to Pilate, where Pilate then ends up uh, caving into the demands of the Jews. We can pick that up in verse uh, 13, where it says, And Pilate summoned the chief priests and the rulers and the people, and said to them, You brought this man to me as one who incites the people to rebellion. And behold, having examined him before you, I have found no guilt in this man regarding the charges which you made against him. See, they wanted to kill him because he was claiming to be Messiah, but they knew that wouldn't fly with Pilate, so they made up stories about him. And you can see in the other gospel, people are making up stories all over the place about him. And, but, but Pilate, at least, was smart enough to know that, that that was a lie, which really kind of makes it worse for Pilate as we read through this. In verse 15, Pilate goes on to say, Nor has Herod, for he sent him back to us, and behold, nothing deserving of death had been done by him. So even Herod said, There's, there's nothing worthy of death that this man Jesus has committed. And then Pilate says, I will therefore punish him and release him. Now he was obliged to release to them the feast one prisoner. This is <clears throat> uh, one of the things we've heard about that we're not going to go. They heard about the story about Barabbas, right? A guy, a, a convict, he was in there, a guy that was facing death sentence. And he said, and he tried to say, Pilate, you know, who do you want released, Jesus or Barabbas? He said, give us Barabbas. So verse 18, they cried out all together saying, away with this man and release for us Barabbas. And uh, he was one of them who had been thrown into prison for a certain insurrection made in the city and for murder. And Pilate wanting to release him, addressed them again. But they kept on calling out saying, crucify him, crucify him. And he said to them the third time, Why? What evil has this man done? I have found in him no guilt demanding death. I will therefore punish him and release him. But they were insistent with loud voice asking him to, that he be crucified and that their voices began to prevail. And Pilate pronounced sentence that their demand should be granted. And he released the man they were asking for and had been thrown into prison for insurrection for murder. But he delivered Jesus to their will. And so once again, we see here where, you know, for the sake of peace, for the sake of keeping things, the status quo, what's a life? You know, life is cheap to these people. He could care. And I mean, this is one of the things that gets me because it's going to be being so clear that um, Jesus was so opposite of these people that couldn't care less about anybody. <clears throat> and so Pilate caved. You know, Matthew 27, I want to quickly look at Matthew 27. The attitude, the hatred that's being spewed out toward Jesus is just unreal. Now, as, as we look at this and what, what they're saying, what the Jews say in response, remember how much the Jews actually hated the Romans when you hear this pick it up in Matthew 27 verse 22 Pilate said to them then what shall I do with Jesus who is called to Christ they all said let him be crucified and he says why what evil has he done but they kept shouting all the more saying let him be crucified and when Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing but rather a riot was starting 
He took water and washed his hands in front of the multitude, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. Cedar to yourself. I need to stop and correct Pilate at that point. Okay? He was just as guilty as anybody. Just as guilty. He had the power, humanly speaking, to say no. But what he, what he didn't know, and nobody else knew that was yelling, crucify him, crucifying, that all of these people were fulfilling the plan of God. Every one of them. Every one of them. And all the people answered and said, His blood be on us and our children. Can you imagine a Jew saying that? No. If you live back in those days, no way. No way they'd say that. Then he released Barabbas for them, and after binding, he scourged them and delivered them to be crucified. And then it goes on, uh, and then the, Matthew goes on, and I'll just read a little bit more here, where more physical and emotional abuse that he had to take. The soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole Roman cohort around. Now, these are, these are Roman soldiers. These are Gentiles. They're, the Jews are away from the scene right now. These are all Romans. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. After weaving a crown of thorns, they, they put it on his head and a reed in his hand, and they kneeled down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spat on him and took the reed and beat him on the head. And after that, they, they mocked him. They took his robe and put it off his garments on him and led him away to crucify him. And again, just, they did not, the Romans did not hate him. That was just pure sport to them. They were just having fun. Again, the low view that these folks had for humanity. The low, low view. Now, to the crucifixion itself. We'll start with the first three hours. Now, it, <clears throat> according to Mark fifteen twenty-five, it was the third hour when they crucified him. That would be the approximate equivalent of 9 a.m. And why I say approximate is because Anybody, anybody have an artifact of a first century Rolex? They didn't have watches. They didn't have timepieces like that. Okay? So everything was geared by the sun and the moon at their timing. And so when we say at 9 o'clock, it would be approximately what we would call the 9 o'clock time frame. It would be in there. All right? Because there's a lot of people that write a lot of books and, uh, you know, something, well, actually, I think it was 9.20. And they'll write a whole, okay. <laughs> whatever relaxes you, you know? Now, as far as crucifixion goes, we must understand that crucifixion itself, and while it's not described in the New Testament at all, it's just mentioned, crucifixion um, was designed to inflict maximum pain and suffering. As a matter of fact, the most extreme word in the English language to describe pain is the word excruciating. Interesting note. The, the word excruciating has its origins in the Latin. Excruciates. Meaning out of the cross. Interesting. Out of the Latin that was spoken at that time in Rome. 
out of the cross. That's how painful and torturous the cross was. That word came from that. Now, that brings us again to Luke 23, 33, where we have the first statement Jesus makes. And I'm taking these in order of occurrence, not in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John order, in order as they would have been spoken. And again, it's, it just blows me away, literally. The first statement Jesus says on the cross, just having gone what he's gone through to this point, now being nailed on the cross, feeling that pain, what does he say in Luke 23, 35? And the people stood by looking on, and, and, and even the rulers were, excuse me, verse 33. And when they had came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him, and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. You want to know the length and the depth of the forgiveness of Christ? There it is. There it is. To these people who are mocking him, who have spit on him, who have beaten him, who are even around the cross just making a big joke about it, on the cross, he's, he's right and he's forgiven for they don't know what they do. And in the same breath of this verse is, and they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. And the people, verse 35, and the people looking on and even the rulers, even the rulers stared at him saying, he saved others, let him save himself if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. Again, mocking, sneering. Uh, Matthew 27, 39 to, to 44, and I've got it in my notes here to save a little bit of time. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, you are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you, are, if, if you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and the elders, were mocking him and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now. If he delights in him, for he said, I am the Son of God. The robbers who had been crucified with him were also hurling we're also insulting him with the same words. So he was getting it from the people down below. He was getting it from the criminals that were hanging on each side of him, just mocking him. find it very interesting. Again, won't turn there, but Psalm 22 predicted all this. 22, 7 and 8 says, All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag their head saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. And then moving further into Psalm 22, 16 and 18 says, for dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. And then they try to tell us this book is not inspired. Come on. This Psalm 22 was written centuries before crucifixion was even invented. 
And you read Psalm 22, it's such a vivid description. It's, it's a better description of crucifixion than you're going to get from the Gospels. The gospel writers didn't have to write a description of crucifixion. All their readers were fully aware of what crucifixion was all about. Okay? And so they, they knew only too well. They probably knew a lot of people who were crucified. Um, so, again, I have to say, you know, the fact in, in light of everything that's going on, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. It just astounds me. The, the depth of his forgiveness you know, these people that were doing all this, they, they had no clue how desperately wicked they really were. But, you know, bringing it to our day, it's only by the grace of God that any of us can know before God how truly wicked we all really are. I mean, think about it. Think about it. You look down on there, but for the grace of God, if you drop us back 2,000 years, what would we have been saying? Where would we have been? By the grace of God, I hope not hurling abuse. Anyway, it's a mystery. It's a mystery. But we speak God. 1 Corinthians 2, 7 and 8 say, But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. A lot of their ignorance was ignorance, was their, a lot of their wickedness was due to their ignorance. You know, where he, where he prays, Father, forgive them. I, I looked. I think back and I'm thinking that, that, I know that prayer. We're going to see one answer of prayer here shortly. But if we may, let's look at Acts chapter 2. I think we're going to see a fulfillment of that. Remember, there was a whole mob out there yelling, crucify him. Here we have the day of Pentecost, that first great sermon preached by Peter on that day, the birthday of the church. Peter stands up. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst just as you yourselves know. This man delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You hear that? I should say, the Romans, the Sanhedrin, they were doing God's bidding and didn't even know it. This man delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. And then verse, move forward to verse 36 if you're there. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. You notice Peter, he's not running and hiding now. He's just right in their face saying, hey, face up to it, fellas. This Jesus, whom you crucified, verse 37, now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent. And let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and your children, for all who have far off and many as the Lord shall call to himself. 
And with, and with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then, those who had received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Could that be perhaps 3,000 answers to that prayer on the cross? And then verse 46 and 47 of Acts 2 and day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their numbers day by day those who were believing or being saved. And that forgiveness leads us back to Luke 23, 39 to 43, Jesus' second statement, which I, which I think is also an answer to that prayer. We'll pick it up in verse 39. And one of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Now remember, earlier on, both of them were bad-mouthing him, mocking him. Something's changed here. But the other answered, verse 40, and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he was, and he, and he was saying, Jesus... Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. I love this section. The second statement is again another demonstration of his marvelous mercy and grace. That the obs- Just some observations. One thing I noticed about this, and I'm going to call him a repentant criminal, because I think that's, I believe that's, that's all part of salvation. The repentant criminal recognized the fact that he was a sinner. Verse 41, hey, we're deserving of our punishment, but this man is innocent. And he goes on to say in, in verse 42, he says, he also came to believe that Jesus was the Christ having the power to say, well, how, how can I say that? Well, he said to him, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. That's acknowledging who he is right there. If you've got a kingdom, you're the king. You're the Messiah. He's acknowledged that too. So where did that come from? By grace are you saved through faith, right? There it is. Grace. It's the grace of God. Yes, the judgment was there. The judgment of sin was there. But the grace of God never stopped. And then you have Jesus' statement. says, truly I say to you, today you shall be in paradise. There's much that could be said there, but let's suffice it this for today. Truly, a statement of emphasis. We read that truly and truly, truly, a lot, especially in the Gospel of John, for example. Jesus made a lot of statements. Sometimes he would preface that statement saying, truly, which means that's like saying, listen up, listen up. And then where something really you needed to hear, he would say, truly, truly, or verily, verily, depending on your translation. Well, this is one of those where he wanted that fellow on the cross to to get it, truly, I say to you, Today, you will be with me in paradise. 
just something to file away with all the different thoughts of what Jesus did during that time he was in the grave. File this away. This day you will be with me in paradise. This very day, Friday, you'll be with me in paradise. Okay? Um, I'll move, move on from there. And paradise, which is just another term for heaven. Just another term for heaven. So you'll be with me in paradise. There's a lot of strange things out there with Jesus. Move on. Third statement. (laughs) John chapter 19. John chapter 19. Verses 25 and 27. Therefore the soldiers did these things, but there were standing by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that time, and from that, and from that hour, from that hour, the disciple took her into his house and his own, and made her one of his own household. We'd stop right there. Now, that therefore, uh, the therefore now stands in contrast to the things that happened before us. Let me just back up to verse twenty to get the context of that therefore. You know, it's one of those things when you see a therefore. And a wherefore, you got to see what they're there for. They're, they're connecting us back. They're continuing a thought. And so, therefore, pick it up, verse 23. The soldiers, therefore, when they had heard, crucified Jesus, took his garments, made four parts. We know about all that. And in verse 20, 24, they said, therefore, one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it. And so they divide, and so... They shamed, and the scripture might be fulfilled. They divided my outer garments, and among them for my clothing they casted lots. Therefore, the soldiers did these things, but, and this, I said all that to say this one word here, this, calling it adversative conjunction, but. And why that is, in verse 25, presents to us a sharp contrast between the callous indifference of the soldiers, which we have seen all along. And the compassionate few who were around the cross who actually loved him. Okay? And who Jesus loved, by the way. Okay? Now those present. Very quickly. His mother. His mother's sister Salome. Who is the mother of James and John. The sons of Zebedee, by the way. Mary, the mother of Clopas. Who is the mother of James, the son of Alphaeus. Clopas being a variant of Alphaeus. Then, of course, there was Mary Magdalene, and we know the Apostle John. There's a passage that immediately thought of with his mother standing there having to watch all this. I don't even know if I can read it. The passage is Luke chapter 2, verse 34 and 35. If you remember, when on the eighth day, the baby Jesus was taken into the temple to be circumcised. Remember the prophecy of Simeon? Simeon? See if I can get the heir to do this. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel, and for a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce even your own soul. Her soul was pierced that day. 
Can you, moms, <clears throat> excuse me, moms, dads, can you imagine standing there watching your son? Can't, couldn't, unspeakable, unimaginable. She was there. She felt the piercing. Now, <clears throat> that actually concludes everything that Jesus spoke within that uh, first, those first three hours of the six that he was on the cross. Now, the final three, the final three uh, hours began with the, began with, uh, begin, excuse me, and end with darkness. So at three hours, let's Matthew 27:45 and uh, Mark 15:33. I'm at Matthew 27:45. I'll just read that one. Now from the sixth hour, <clears throat> darkness fell upon the land until the ninth hour. So there we are. Sixth hour again. That uh, that sixth hour is again approximately what we know as 12 o'clock high noon. Where the sun would normally be at its apex, up at its brightest, total darkness. Now, as far as the, it says darkness fell upon the land until the ninth hour. And the ninth hour would be approximately 3 p.m. We don't know the extent of that darkness. Was it the area around Jerusalem? Was it the entire Roman Empire? Was it the entire earth? We don't know. We're not told. There's, again, plenty written on it. None of it can be documented, but plenty written. For those hours, and this is what's important for us to know, especially when we, at communion, we do this when we take the, the bread and the cup, remembering his body and blood. For those three hours, God the Father poured out his wrath upon the son who bore our sin. Three solid hours. Darkness is associated with God's judgment. Um, Joel chapter 2. If I can find it real quick here. Joel chapter 2, verse 1 and 2 says... Speaking of the end times, blow a trumpet in Zion and, and, and sound an alarm on my, my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, as the dawn is spread over the mountains and there is a great and mighty people. Okay, again, darkness often associated with the uh, <clears throat> judgment of God. If you remember back uh, when Will went through Joel, you can see that in Joel chapter 2, 1 and 2, I'm going to Amos 5 and Amos 8. Darkness, synonymous with God's judgment. A matter of fact, Jesus, uh, back in Matthew, Jesus, uh, I'll just turn to ch uh, chapter 25, where he's talking about the end times, chapter 25, verse uh, 30. Uh, <clears throat> and the and cast out the, the worthless slave into the outer darkness in the place that there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Again, hell itself 
is described as a place of darkness, punishment. And then we move on now. That moves us now to the fourth statement, which is given at that time. We're in Matthew. We can stay there. Matthew 27, 46. I'm going to pick up 45 to set the context. Now, from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And you have virtually an identical statement quoted by Mark. We won't turn there. The only difference, instead of Eli, Eli, Mark says Eloi, Eloi. Matthew from the Hebrew, Mark from the Aramaic. The differences doesn't matter for us today. Which says, my God, my God, why have thou forsaken me? Interesting note here, this is the only place in the gospel where Jesus does not address God as his father. And I think it's because of the, that distance he's feeling. That feeling of being forsaken. The father-son relationship isn't quite the same at that point. The repeated, my God, my God, expresses, I believe, the son's longing for the father due to this present separation. He says, once again, we've got to remember who Jesus is. He is, in fact, the God-man. He is 100% God, 100% man. He's not 50-50, 75-25, or anything else. And while he was on that cross, he was 100% God being judged. He was the second person of the Trinity on that cross. And when he said, my God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? That's a direct quote of Psalm 22.1, which introduces us to that psalm that describes crucifixion. And... Forsaken. Now, forsaken does not mean God went away for those three hours of darkness. (laughs) On the contrary, he was there. He was there. He was there in judgment, exercising divine wrath on the sons for the sins that he bore. Our sins. The sins of his people. So when we do this in remembrance of him, think about that. Think about that. That's why the uh, Paul makes such a big deal about one needing to examine themselves prior to receiving community. It's no little ritual that we go through once a month. It's a it's it's an important thing. It's very important. I mean, we read about it earlier, where it says, you know, he was pierced through for our transgressions, Isaiah fifty three. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a sheep, it was silent before his shears, he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away for his generation. Who considered him that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgressions of my people to whom the stroke was due? And 53.10 says it. What was going on during that darkness? But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. He would render himself as a guilt offering. And that's what Jesus was on that cross. He was a guilt offering for our sin. For our sin. Not his. He was sinless. 
He, he, led, he led the perfect life. The only human being that ever was born on this earth did. Only one. Only one in all of human history. And then during the three hours of judgment, God was there. But now that the ninth hour, when this statement was made, but now that the ninth hour is, has arrived, in that moment, when he was, <clears throat> he was, was when he was physically and emotionally, just speaking of Jesus, totally exhausted beyond anything we could ever comprehend, I think the, the whole feeling of abandonment sunk in. This feeling of being forsaken I, seems to be the final suffering. And I think, too, it, it holds as a reminder to all that reject the gospel, there will, be, there will only be the wrath of God to, to pay for those who won't believe, refuse to believe, and for that wrath, there will be no end. There will be no expectation of comfort. The comfort of God's love and compassion was absent, but this was about to change. And it was going to change. This was just for that, I believe, that brief moment when everything hit, everything, I mean, the, the last, whatever that judgment was in those three hours of darkness, when, that, when, it, when the finality of it finally hit and he started to come out of it, he goes, like, my God, my God, why, why are you forsaken me? It was like, again, it's something we can't experience. But he, he felt it, and it was after, at the end of it. The fifth statement, we go back to the Gospel of John, John 19. And it's, again, it's something that defies human understanding. You, have to be, you would have to be God, sinless God, holy God, covered in sin, experiencing the wrath of God. Anybody want to try to explain that to me? I, I can't do it. I'm at a loss for words. But he did that, and he did that for us. John 19, 28, 29, we come to the fifth statement. And after this, knowing that all things had been already accomplished, in order that the scriptures might be fulfilled, said, I am thirsty. This is when he spoke to the Roman soldiers. Well, I'll just, this was a, that scripture might be fulfilled. Well, Psalm 69, 21 says, they also gave me gall for my food and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. That completed, fulfilled that scripture. And we just move right down in John here, move down to John 30, and we have the sixth statement where John says in verse 30, when he took the took the sour wine I'll pick it up 29 the sour wine was standing there so they put a sponge on it and a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth when Jesus therefore had received the sour wine he said it is finished you notice in your Bibles there's an exclamation point after it is finished that folks is a victory cry it's a shout of victory it is finished his work of redemption is accomplished. It's finished. Sin was atoned for. Hebrews. I mean, Hebrews 9, Hebrews anywhere. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's Hebrews. It was atoned for. Hebrews 2, all 2.14, Satan was defeated. And on our note, 
Another thing to remember him for, our salvation was secured. We don't have time, but we are all familiar with it. Romans 8, that magnificent. When people say, list your 10 favorite passages, that one's usually in there somewhere. Romans 8. And finally, as we're winding down our time here, the seventh and final statement takes us back to Luke 23. Verse 46. They gave it here in almost like two parts. As you got, you got that statement in John, and you've got the statement here in Luke. This might actually, I think it probably could have been almost like one statement linked together it is finished and then the very next and last thing said on the cross is verse 46 and Jesus said crying out with a loud voice said father into thy hands I commit my spirit aren't we glad to hear it Jesus addressing God as father again that estrangement, if you will, is ended. That's over. That's over too. That, that was ended, I believe that was ended probably immediately after he said, why hast thou forsaken me? I would not be surprised if it ended just like within seconds of that statement. But that statement just sums up everything he'd just gone through for since Thursday night, quite frankly. And... Again, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. And grace, grace. Look at verse 47. Now when the centurion saw what had, been, what had happened, he began praising God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And if you compare that to Matthew 27, 54, anybody remember what he said? Truly, this man was the son of God. So there, the grace of God, again, and the centurion was the guy in charge of all those soldiers around the cross who were making fun of him, you know, rolling dice for his garments, but again, <clears throat> at this point, I would like to go back to 1 Corinthians 11. And also about this time, um, I'd like to close in prayer and then the men that are going to serve communion come on forward at this, t- this point in time. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your deep, deep sacrifice God, we know we we are not deserving of any of it, but you are deserving of all of our praise and our thanksgiving and all the glory we can give you. And Lord, too, as we move into our communion time, may we indeed remember, may we remember. We thank you, Lord, and may you be praised. Amen.